and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Bicep Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, I'm Out of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, today's guest is making his maiden appearance on the farm, and I could not be more excited for this one. He is an artist based out of the Bay Area. He is the founder of Oaklandish, a street art and viral marketing campaign turned fashion line and retail store. And that was just the beginning. He would go on to create the legendary alternate reality game, the Jejun Institute, later depicted in the film, The Institute, and the inspiration behind the TV series, Dispatches from Elsewhere. And also he created the Latitude Society, which served as the basis for the feature in Bright Axiom. Folks, I give you guys the great Jeff Hall. Thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. This is an unbelievable honor for me. Oh, Reckless, it's a pleasure to be here, and the honor is mutual. All right. Well, with Jeff here, we're inevitably going to be talking about alternate reality games, or ARGs, as they're more commonly known. Obviously, regular listeners know this is a topic I'm quite obsessed with, but Jeff is going to take us through a -a one-of-a-kind exploration. We are going to consider potential inspirations ranging from Rosicrucianism, the White Chapel Club, and the original Fortean Society, as well as more recent precursors. Think the usual suspects, Discordianism, Cophony Society, Neoism. From there, we are going to look at some of the more philosophical aspects before getting to our grand finale, namely what Jeff is working on now. I have no idea, but I already know it's going to blow my mind like every other project he's done. So on that note, let us start the show. in alternate reality games, I began to focus on the original Rosicrucian Fuhrer that uh, as the most likely beginning for this form in the modern era. It seemed to make sense as the Fuhrer unfolded against the backdrop of the Thirty Years' War and later the Westphalian Peace, and from these things, the modern nation state and so forth. 
But as for the original manifestos, the evidence seems to suggest that there was no formal Rosicrucian society per se prior to them. But for better or worse, they inspired a fire in the minds of humanity. The likely author, Johannes Valentinius Andrea, apparently hoped that they would inspire the educated classes of Europe to seek the higher principles of the Paracelsian physicians at a time when the continent was being torn apart by the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. Think Montpelier and uh, that great school of medicine that they had there that brought together so many people from cross faiths. There were Jews, there were Muslims, and of course, Christians, all united on trying to heal both the body and the soul. Uh, instead, as the uh, 17th century approached, it unleashed a wave of, uh, uh, well, after the Rosicrucian manifestos uh, hit Europe, they unleashed a wave of secret order orders across Europe, hopefully that were in keeping with the spirit of Mount Pelier. Andreas, Andrea was a bit uh, dissuaded, though. He once described uh, the manifestos that he had authored as a game for the curious. This seems about as fitting a description for an ARG as you can get. So, Jeff, where do you stand? So I love all of this history and, and context, and I'm, you know, I'm a student as I'm sitting here um, in this dialogue, and um, bringing up the Rosicrucians isn't, this is not the first time I, I've heard that analogy, um, but it definitely wasn't like a forethought to the work that I've done and a lot of people in the immersive field. Um, but what we're essentially talking about is reality building, and the process by which we um, imagine, uh, envision, uh, and manifest, and um, initiate, communicate, and initiate a, a vision of the world uh, to people. So in that sense, um, you're speaking to a resolution. Well, very much so. And yeah, it's definitely fascinating how it does seem like uh, so much of this revolves around the attempted sort of uh, project utopian visions onto the world that hopefully others will pursue. Again, I think that's another aspect of the original Rosicrucian manifestos that's uh, been sorely overlooked. So as I understand, the origins of the Rosicrucians is nebulous at best. Is right. that accurate? And the Fuhrer that you describe, is that a specific moment in time? Yeah, it was when the original manifestos uh, started to come out, um, ironically, roughly around one of those great conjunctions, I think in like 1670 or something like that. But they had started to come out a little before then. And again, it was like right at the onset of the Thirty Years' War, which obviously had such a profound effect on the uh, future history of the West going forward. So it was... Um, a rather synchronistic time, I suppose, for them to appear, uh, to put it mildly. Yeah, there's a bunch of different dimensions to kind of dissect this. One is the manifesto and the ideas being communicated. And so any church or society or, or social club or, or internet forum might have those kinds of ideals set forth in a manifesto or basic operating agreement. And then there's the process by which those are disseminated. Um, usually, like there's some kind of initiatory process. And I think that's what's been, you know, you can see the, the branches from that 
those roots uh, coming about in all the different kind of movements that you've alluded to. And that's really interesting to me, this kind of idea of like an experiential initiation towards both a personal transformation and then a collective transformation. Well, absolutely. And it's it's interesting, too, on that note with the original manifestos that they were originally intended for, you know, very exclusive circles. I mean, a lot of men with a similar background as Andrea, people who had uh, been educated uh, at the universities in continental Europe and also had a certain interest in metaphysics as well. But eventually the manifestos were republished and uh, made it to the broader public at large. And uh, this was something that Andrea was not especially happy about uh, because he thought that as the manifestos made their way more into the masses at large, the uh, actual intention and purpose was lost gradually. Uh, and that led into some of these more, I guess, like kind of ridiculous secret orders that grew out of it. But it was always meant to inspire more of a, a universal brotherhood than a uh, group of these kind of secretive esoteric orders that really, I mean, kind of continued to hide away a lot of this knowledge. Are you proposing that there may have been an unintended consequence to his work? Oh, that yeah, he- absolutely. <laughs> I figured that was something you would appreciate greatly. I mean, that's another interesting thing about the history of all of this is unintended consequences are such a huge part of it all. I mean, it's inevitable. I mean, you're going to posit this stuff into the world and it's going to have a life of its own that's quite beyond the creator's initial impulses. Absolutely. Um, It's just the, uh, I think it's just the interaction with the muses and when you're effectively trying to perform magic through the arts. Uh, It's a very uh, unique process and one that can have some very uh, wide-ranging effects, to put it mildly. Yeah, well, that process is something I'm would love to take a deep dive um, and I'm not sure where on the docket that is, but um, it's a really uh, fruxy topic, part of this discussion. Well, we can maybe uh, wrap that. We can get into that maybe here towards the end as we get into some more of the philosophical aspects. Uh, I think that maybe uh, might be interesting in light of some of the projects that you're working on, but um, we will see. But yes, that's it's something that I've thought of a lot as well recently is uh the arts as a form of magic seems to become more and more relevant uh, with each and every passing day. Yeah, and it contributes to uh, one of my theses is about what's happening in the uh, immersive arts world right now and what's not happening in the immersive arts world. Um, so, yeah, we'll get there. All right, well, let's get here to some more of the origins here right quick. So I've considered some of these journalistic clubs that were dedicated to practical jokes, which uh, started to pop up around the late 19th century. So one of the most significant ones and still active today was established in Burlington, Wisconsin during 1929. And this was an apt location. Uh, The press there had helped uh, previously launch the career, quote unquote, of James Strang and his uh, Mormon heretics onto the national stage just prior to the Civil War. And um, for some historical context of this, this was shortly uh, after Joseph Smith had died, or yeah, 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 Joseph Smith, I always get him and John Smith confused. And um, Brigham Young had was in the process of trying to solidify his hold over the Mormon church. And then Strang had kind of emerged as this dark horse rival to possibly usurp him. So there's also some uh, speculation that there was maybe a bit of a political push to uh, 
get Strang uh, at the head of the Mormon church during this particular point in time as um, this was uh, obviously during some of the more extreme uh, phases of early Mormon history. But uh, again, it's interesting with the links with uh, Strang, obviously, and uh, later that name became so relevant with the Church of the Subgenius and certainly the Burlington Liars Club and all this other stuff. Um, so were you ever familiar with any of this history? Um, not the Mormon history, although it is fascinating and relevant. I'm way more of a, a descendant of uh, Ivan Stang and the Subgenius and that generation of church builders. Did you have any familiarity with the Burlington Liars Club? No, I did a little bit of research on some of the topics you sent, but um, yeah, I think there's like a lineage and you could like trace the DNA back to these groups, but I don't have a, I'm not a direct descendant or student of, of that school. So you'd have to educate me about them. Well, that's a good one here for our next topic that I wanted to get into. And uh, it's one of the uh, stranger uh, things to come out of Chicago, which is saying something. And that would be uh, the Whitechapel Club, which was established in 1889 with Jack the Ripper as its honorary head. And um, this is actually the year after the Ripper killings came to a conclusion as well. Uh, another name for the group was the Suicide Club. And uh, there were, in fact, multiple suicide clubs in the U.S. during the late 19th century. They were an offshoot of the labor movement with members committing suicide as a protest against the Gilded Age. But in the hands of the Whitechapel Club, they became an object of mockery to some extent. At one point, they procured the body of a Dallas-based suicide club member who had recently committed suicide and staged a mock funeral pyre on the outskirts of Chicago. As the body burned, members walked around the pyre with torches three times. They then recited songs and speeches deep into the night. The festivities closed out with the group sifting through the remaining ashes. This soon began the traditional opening of their meetings. And it also began a rather curious tradition. So elsewhere, there was uh, New York's Agawkwin uh, Roundtable slash the Vicious Circle. And we'll be going with the Vicious Circle from here on out. A fascinating <laughs> aspect about the latter two is how they intersected with the OG Fordian Society as well, which was also primarily composed of journalists and authors. Fordian Society founder Theodore Dresser knew many of the Whitechapel Club members, such as Brandon Whitlock, George Audie and Finley Peter Dune from his time working as a journalist in Chicago. Elsewhere, Dune knew several future Fordians, including H.L. Mencken and Frank Lloyd Wright. Audie was quite friendly with future Fordians as well, having known Dresser, Alexander Woolcott, and Booth Tarkenton. H.L. Mencken may have known him as well. He was certainly one of uh, 80's biggest fans. And as for the Vicious Circle, several members such as Woolcott and Dorothy Parker were also active in the Fordian Society at the same time. And of course, the Fordians via N. Mead Lane and others bled into early ufologists like Gray Baker and James Mosley, guys who also were accused of uh, doing a bit of a hoax at times or two themselves. Do you see this whole milieu as being a factor in the rise of alternate reality games? So, like, as you're speaking, I'm imagining, like, this shed, like, a beautiful mind with all of these strands and links and uh, reference notes and this grand map of these traditions. And I really occupy this one area of that, like, maybe one wall of the shed. 
And so the references that you're talking about lead to things like the San Francisco Suicide Club and the Cacophony Society and the Human Potential Movement and things like EST or or Dianetics or actualizations in these both pseudosciences and collectives and groups, and some of them are more maybe earnest than others. Some of them view themselves as pranksters, and that's a different kind of magic. But honestly, these schools, if we call them, they weren't primary in my uh, motivations. And if any of the people who who are doing like alternative reality games are claiming that kind of lineage or claiming that as a primary motivation. I don't see that. I see gaming as kind of more of an entertainment than it is like this meaningful dive into existential quandaries, either individually or collectively. Like there is room for that in this space, but like it's one of the problems I see in like alternative reality games as a genre is this kind of analytical approach and entertainment approach like how authentic or transformative can they be? And I think there's a few things that you've mentioned that um, like in terms of the, like the last 30 years of this kind of work, like Ong's hat, I think would be an example of something that is earnestly mysterious and um, genuine in its appeal to our deeper selves. But ARGs in general, I wouldn't, put in that category no that's fair enough um well for me i kind of feel like the underlining thread to a lot of this is the reoccurrence of humor and pranks as a uh, a kind of teaching tool if you will uh to ultimately achieve a higher uh, enlightenment or a greater knowledge of things uh, this is sort of like one of the threads that I'm fascinated by this, you know, particular sort of cultural milieu in the West, because it's, it almost sort of makes me think of um, a Western version of like Taoism or Sufism or something to that effect, where humor and pranks do ultimately factor in very much in, as a uh, form of teaching. So that's kind of, at least from where I approach it from, is sort of the lineage that ARGs do, especially since, well, obviously humor is a big part of many of them, but more than anything, a lot of it is the pranks and that kind of thing. Because I do think that uh, that can be such an effective way of taking people outside of the, let's just say, consciousness that they normally inhabit and sort of open them up to a new way of viewing things, if you will. Yeah, so that like level of absurdity and playfulness, I think are important elements in like an alchemical approach to this and groups like the Subgenius or minds like Robert Anton Wilson definitely like had heavy doses of the humorous and the absurd. My earlier projects like the the jejun were so wildly like colorful and and silly and there was an absurdity there was a depth there was a lot of ideas in there and there was a lot of other elements to it but that made it fun it invited people to participate and play in 
these kinds of activities, perhaps when they wouldn't otherwise give themselves permission to do so. So I think, yeah, that pranksterism is a part of the impulse, but I'm imagining that it must move beyond that for it to really do the transformative work, to have a lasting kind of change in the participant or anyone in it. Otherwise, it's like, yeah, there's all kinds of fun and games we can have. There's scavenger hunts and there's uh, flash mobs and then there's um, all kinds of content that you can share and like, what's the story you're telling? And like, um, there's almost like a nihilistic aspect to it if it's all absurdity. But I kind of get lost in the thread there, but um, we're finding our way. All right. On the uh, topic of things that can lose the thread, um, how about the Discordian Society? Uh, certainly they had an interest in uh, many of the prayer individuals, groups and movements. And also Operation Mindfuck has often been described as one of the main precursors to modern day ARGs. Um, so where do you stand on that? I'm coming from a place of like the subcultures of the 70s and 80s. The the way that I was introduced to a path beyond what was just presented to me through family and social institutions was like the intersection of Telegraph Avenue and Durant in Berkeley during the 1980s, where you might see a flyer to some underground punk show, or you might see a poster for midnight movies that are happening this weekend. You might see some B-boys with some cardboard out on the pavement. You'd see like some kind of unhinged street performance happening. And maybe there's some graffiti that is a haiku that is gesturing towards the numinous. And I'd I'd pass by payphones that had this writing on them that said, Miss Cat is watching you. And then the phone would ring. And then suddenly there'd be this sultry voiced woman who was like either seducing you or berating you. And these were like my formative years that gave me this notion that there's information and culture and a way of being that is like beyond what was originally presented to me, what was on the menu of options for me to engage with before that time. And so this is the Bay Area. This is like Berkeley. They called it Berserkly. Obviously, San Francisco had a lot of, you know, activist movements that have origins from the free speech movement to the Black Panther Party or like subcultures, either the Hells Angels or like Gilman Street Project. Um, these are the things that really like inspired me and invited me in. And there was a kind of initiatory thing, very informal, but you could become initiated into some of these groups. There were there were squats, there was encounter groups that were part of the like um human potential movement. And this is really like my both philosophical and in practice origins for the for the work that I've done. Um and I'm wondering how much of that overlaps with you know the the references that you've presented. Well, how about uh, the Suicide Club of San Francisco and the uh, Cacophony Society, for instance? Yeah, so those groups were really active in, in the 70s and 80s, and I think they do have lineage to the groups that you're talking about. And you could see that come about through um, the advent of like the subgenius. And I was more of like a student of those schools. I wasn't active in the Cacophony Society. I wasn't active in the Suicide Clubs. 
but particularly the idea of urban exploration and like finding your way into the um, storm drains or onto the roofs or into secret corridors in your urban environment. That was very informative to me. And and the subgenius group definitely gave me an idea that you can playfully create a congregation with a deep backstory and an ethos, a very subversive ethos. Um, so those things all definitely informed me, but I, I wasn't active in those groups. Like on the topic of setting, that's something that I've uh, really been interested in a lot lately. I've been able to travel more in the past few years, and I've really become obsessed with finding kind of these these magical spots in the uh, relatively mundane world. And I'm thinking of places like Spring Green, Wisconsin, where there's a Tillysian East and House of the Rock uh, that are within seven miles or so of each other, or just genuinely strange and curious communities like Rose Valley, Pennsylvania, or Somerset, Kentucky. Uh, journeying to places like this and partaking in the weirdness has become almost a pilgrimage for me, which does remind me a bit of the whole thing, like urban explorations and so forth. And I just love how your args often seem to incorporate these kinds of places as well. Do you also find these spots significant for adopting maybe more of a magical point of view, for lack of a better description? Yeah, absolutely. We have kind of an approach to that type of exploration. And for me, it brings into question the boundaries that are both real and imagined or set forth for us. The way we find and discover locations in our environment, um, what are this what are the signs and what are the signals? So like this idea that just beyond the beaten path is this small enclave or there's some sacred space, or some discovery that is there for us. I've always enjoyed trying to nudge or guide people towards these kinds of discoveries. And so one of them is just being a scout or an explorer or willing to find yourself down a hidden alley or go up this private staircase or something like that. And a lot of us don't give ourselves permission to do that, but I've got this orange vest mentality where it's like, if I've got the orange vest on and I don't literally have an orange vest, but it's like, I'm official. I can just transverse these boundaries. And uh, one of my tips and tricks for doing that is somebody asks you what you're doing or why you're there. I, I tell them that um, I'm a location scout and I'm here on official business, you know, um, scouting locations for film projects. And that's, almost totally true. Um, I am scouting locations, but it brings into issue the way things have changed in the last few decades. You know, those lines between a private space and a public space have changed. And one of the examples here is like in the East Bay, we have this whole network of secret stairways. And these used to be pedestrian routes to the, the key system, which were commuter trains that led from the East Bay Hills down into central Oakland and across the bridge to San Francisco. And there was this massive train system that was dismantled through really private industry and lobbying, right? So those trains don't exist anymore because they wanted to sell oil and tires. But the stairways still exist. And so these were places that I would explore as a kid and it was this liminal space. You weren't in anybody's yard, but you weren't on the street. And so you could go and either you could play there. And then maybe later, as I got into adolescence, it's where you might 
you know, be found imbibing on the herbs or, you know, hanging out with uh, some peers or something like that. And so those those spaces are being challenged now. Um, we're in a security state. There's way more fences. There's way more security guards. There's way more cameras than there were even 10 years ago. And that's a trend that I, I see continuing. And so the idea of being able to give yourself permission or autonomy or authority to go into those spaces, I think you're going to be challenged more and more. And also my sense of like really empowering other people to do that. One of the things I've learned that gets back into the kind of initiatory like social groups and stuff, just because I can go and walk into the top floor of like some corporate building and walk through the halls. That's what the Jejun Institute was. It was like, come up to the seventh floor, fifth floor, um, and, you know, meet the reception and be given this key and then go to this office and let yourself in and then leave through the exit and then bypass the security cameras and look for the clues. And now you're going to go into this other realm and this whole map, creating a new map. Now we're getting back to kind of the core of the conversation. But I feel less confident in giving other people permission to do that because both the things I've mentioned about we're in a security state, you're going to be challenged more in those kinds of explorations, but also my inherent sense of faith in audience members or participants that is something that like I don't have the same relationship with audiences where I would say, yeah, take my map and go to this hidden spot and just be cool. It'll be fine. My relationships to the spaces has changed, as I've mentioned, and also my relationship to actual and imagined audiences has changed. But I'm still out there looking for the hidden spot, looking for what's just beneath the surface, what's just off the path. For those people who I do have a relationship of trust with, I will share those spaces with them. I'm not putting them into my productions now. I'm not putting them into a public-facing game framework at this time because the world has changed. The world has really changed since we started doing this work. Yeah, it's it's a valid point on both levels. I mean, I I know in general too the kind of privatization of everything as well has also uh, contributed to the difficulty of going to some of these places because I know some of the areas that I've explored. One of the most challenging aspects was just finding a place that I could park my car where it wouldn't be towed. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, absolutely. You know, especially since, again, I, I live in like West Virginia where, um, you know, it's it's not really a big deal to randomly park your car somewhere. Um, you might be shot, but you're probably not going to have your car towed. Um, it's a much different issue, though, in other parts of the country. Uh, and yeah, it's, um, you know, definitely a challenge, but also as well. And it kind of goes back to uh, what we were talking about uh with the Russia Crucian manifestos at the beginning where, um, you know, you can have these unintended consequences and that's certainly something that's weighed on me as well. And even in the case of something like Rose Valley, where I've only really talked with it on shows that were behind Patreons, it was with mixed feelings because on the one hand I had partly gone there because there were just a lot of ludicrous allegations surrounding the place that had been put out by certain individuals for years that, you know, frankly, I really wanted to debunk. Well, you know, it seemed beyond absurd, really, with some of the things that I had read that had been put online and mentioned in other podcasts and so forth. And 
after going out there the first time, I felt pretty confident uh, that, yes, it was uh, absolutely an absurd amount of statements that had been put out. And I did feel a need to get into that. And I also wanted to just highlight, you know, frankly, just how cool the place really was in a lot of ways as well. But conversely, that opens up another can of worms. So you sort of set out almost... Is this the California Rose Valley or... No, no, no this is in Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Because there's... Okay, okay. Yes, fittingly, it's yes, very close to uh, Philadelphia, which um, yes, that was uh, ended up being the location for uh, dispatches of elsewhere, the TV version, if I remember correctly. So that's right. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a very interesting place, certainly. This used to be like the Wild West, this kind of frontier area where there was a lot of unclaimed space, and this goes back to my work actually with Oaklandish, where I would like just take a unoccupied parking lot downtown at night and turn it into a drive-in movie theater with the projections and, and radio transmission. And that was absolutely appropriate for that moment because at night in downtown Oakland, there was very little nightlife going on, but also very little contest for my just kind of reclamation of that space. And now those spaces are hotly contested and many of those parking lots have condos that have either been built or are being built. And there's also less of a need to just create your own culture, or maybe there is still a need to create your own culture, but there's not a need to like add more events in downtown Oakland. There's just so much going on there now, but that leads to like, there's the geographic map, which I was saying, like, what can we do with the geographic map? But there's all kinds of other frontiers. There's <laughs> the collective frontier or the consciousness frontier or the political frontier or you know i'm most interested in the cultural but there's there's other maps and there's other frontiers but the geographic map is hotly contested in california and i think from what i've experienced the world over that's that's kind of a global phenomenon the population has grown and the privatization has grown those open spaces aren't as open as they once were but that doesn't mean that they're not there huge right now. I mean, arguably, it's never been bigger. But cynic than I am, I find the whole thing incredibly underwhelming. Having the right mindset helps, no doubt, but only to a certain point. And that's one of the reasons why I find ARG so fascinating. Not only do they attempt to alter your worldview, but they typically force you to get into the real world and act upon this, you know, shifting I think that's really the key actions. Uh, you are what you do in a lot of ways, at least in my own experience. Um, you know, where do you stand on that? 
So when you're talking about the secret, you're talking about the very popular book and the idea of the law. Yeah, of like kind of new thought or that, you know. That. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those half truths. It's a tool that can be put into anyone's hands. You can use a hammer very effectively to do a lot of different things, both constructive and destructive. And so when you're talking about the law of attraction, the idea that your thoughts are going to manifest reality, in some sense, that's absolutely true. <laughs> you know, And in some sense, it's like, well, what are you asking for? And how are you asking for it? And what are your behaviors and actions around that? So if you are using the secret to either aspire for a certain kind of lifestyle, home or automobile, or find the love of your life, you know, like have fun and not pursue. If you're using the secret to create presence or understanding or to manifest your, you know, your inner visions, you know, that's an entirely different proposition. But I think it's one piece to a much <laughs> larger puzzle. And some people are absolutely drawn to it, um, mystified and astounded by this principle. But I think it's a very kind of rudimentary element of consciousness and existing in this world. So that's my kind of like nutshell take on it. And I never got past the the headlines about it because I saw it as something very chicken soup for the soul, Oprah book club type of thing where it's like for people who haven't done deeper studies or have these kind of like eclectic esoteric uh, interests or haven't done a lot of work, then it is one channel that you can get into. And I ultimately feel like each channel that we choose or each school of thought, every leader or every philosophy is something that people can give you as some content and they can transmit this idea to you. They can even give you an experience around that. And that's going to be helpful for you. And that's going to maybe elevate you to another plateau of understanding about um you know, your, your place in this world. Ultimately, though, we each have to go through the major arc of discovery. We have to establish our identities in this world, and then we have to destroy those identities or have them destroyed. We need to question the foundations upon which we've built our, you know, our entire um, understanding of the world. And I think that's just the individual path that everybody will have to take. And so probably the secret is going to be really, really useful for somebody in a certain moment or a certain type of person in a certain moment. But if that's your whole aspirational <laughs> approach, then I, I'm imagining that it's going to be very limited. Now, having said that, like maybe I'm going to go after this podcast interview, I'm going to go and like start watching all the videos and pay some kind of subscription thing where I'm totally transformed by it and come back and tell you I was wrong. I'm open to that too. <laughs> what do you think? For me, I've always felt that uh, actions were really the key to a lot of this more so than thoughts. It's kind of like if you want something out of the universe, you have to be willing to give something to it in the first place or act out upon something um you know i had always sort of like hoped for many years to have the chance to be kind of a professional freelance writer or something to that effect but it wasn't really until i actually started 
just writing, you know, really for myself and then getting it into a daily habit that things began to just sort of line up and happen for me. I mean, I think that there's a lot to be said, obviously, for the right mindset or desiring the appropriate things and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like ultimately you are really what your actions are. You know, if you're not really going out and doing anything to practically manifest the things that you want, then you're probably not going to uh, get the things that you're desiring. It kind of reminds me of the old saying, shit in one hand and wish in the other and see which one fills up first. I suppose that's like rather cynical, but I did go through that whole process where I had to uh, just totally reinvent myself several years ago in the just basically a total destruction of personality and rebuild myself from the ground up. And I mean, a lot of that was driven almost totally by the actions that I engaged in. So I think that that's ultimately the big thing, at least for me, that helped me through this process. From what I've seen with other people as well, I mean, a lot of times that's a major factor for them too. Indeed. I'm with you like a hundred percent on the uh, notion of like, it is our actions and language comes along with that. But to do the point counterpoint thing is like, in order to take those steps, you need to believe that you're capable of executing or manifesting those goals. And so having the motivation and having the belief are a step in the action process. No, that's definitely a valid point. I mean, I do think that ultimately, I guess, believing in myself was a big part of it. Are there episodes where you've spoken about that part of your journey where you've started from the ground up? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, some of it's rather personal for me, so I don't know if I would put all of it entirely out, uh, on the air, but I mean, that's something if you're curious about, I can always uh, write you an email or something like that later on. Well, the reason I asked is because more and more in the work that I'm doing, like this element of like, what is really, really personal. And there's some things that are simply like private that I don't need to discuss um, in any kind of like outward facing forum, but like the work that I'm doing and the path that I've been on has become like a deeply personal odyssey and they really inform each other. Like, I feel like the same might be true of, of your podcast and the topics you wish to explore and the guests in the conversations you're having all resonate or reflect some of those very personal events. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think probably it would be actually more like the Zoom parties that I've done. Usually I do those once a month for uh, the subscribers, but typically for the last at least, you know, probably seven, eight months or so, they've almost totally revolved around different trips that I've taken with uh, some of my different colleagues, my research partner, Keith Allen Dennis, and, uh, you know, some other people, and just essentially chronicle the adventures uh, that I've had. But again, I mean, this was for me a big part of uh, the odyssey that I was on. And this was, you know, again, partly discovering these magical places that I had alluded to earlier because I was coming from a position where I've been living a very mundane life, quote unquote. I had been working as a cook professionally for many years, uh, watching, you know, football on Sundays, that kind of thing. I hadn't really traveled very much. I mean, since my early 20s, I had just turned 40 a couple of months ago. So it was a big thing for me, uh, you know, just to really kind of start over again. And then also uh, just really encountering all of these amazing, fantastic people 
uh, all across the country. You know, I had uh, had a bit of a following for a couple of years at that point, but I had only really started to engage with people towards the end of 2019 going into 2020. And I guess kind of ironically is everybody was locked down with COVID. I started heading out into the world uh, and going to a lot of these curious places, meeting a lot of interesting people like Dan Dutton, the uh, musician and uh, artist from Somerset and uh, a couple of other just fantastic folks. And it was a big part of me. I just think sort of discovering a lot about myself, just having some incredible moments with some of the locations that I was going to and how it would relate to experiences that I had had. Okay, I guess I'll give you one example uh, that was... No, this is fascinating to me. Everything that you're talking about is like, to me, this is that journey towards knowledge and towards greater understanding. Like these chapters are important ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, one example that I'll kind of tell you was that we had recently gone to the area in Wisconsin around Elkhorn, where the, uh, you know, the whole thing with the Beast of the Bray Road had been cited uh, many times and kind of that whole area around there. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's, you know, the famous werewolf thing from Wisconsin that started to get mentioned around the uh, late 80s and especially into the early 90s. Well, is this around where the, the um, House on the Rock is? Yeah, it's not too far from House on the Rock, actually. It's a little closer to the area around uh, Lake Geneva, which fittingly is where Dungeons and Dragons originates from. And then also uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, I think, which is where Slender Man originated from. Okay. So, yeah, it's the whole area around there is really just fascinating with some of the things that have come out of it. We were at this town uh, nearby, and uh, I like going to some of these old graveyards because oftentimes they have these just really remarkable headstones and so forth that um, have been put up by some of these, you know, masons and uh, the woodsmen and all these other groups. Definitely, this place had a really amazing graveyard. And uh, we were going through it, and towards the end, we found this vase with this kind of green man relief on it. And it was just so striking to us, and I had a feeling that I had seen it before, and then I had gone back uh, into one of the books that had been written uh, on the Beast of Bray Road, and I found the image, and I guess apparently a farmer in a town not too far from this graveyard and from the Bray Road region had found the same image in his uh, backyard on the same kind of like broken uh, statue or something like that. And she had traced this image back to these sort of green man uh, reliefs that you would find like on these striking cathedrals in Prague and places like that. And it was just so fascinating because uh, one of the guys that I had gone with uh, on the trip with had done this, uh, you know, birth of rebirth of Pan ritual, which uh, he had kind of credited with setting him on this, on his own sort of esoteric journey. And then we had met through our mutual interest in Hellier, uh, the Amazon show that sort of chronicles the paranormal dealings around a lot of the stuff in Kentucky. And then specifically the Penny Royal podcast, uh, the Penny Royal thing is where we had met each other through. And again, the Penny Royal guys are obsessed with Pan. That's where I've met Dan Dutton, the uh, composer slash artist I had just mentioned. He actually wrote a full-blown orchestra to Pan, uh, The Fawn, which I'm actually quite a big fan of. It's uh, rather a remarkable piece. And anyway, so Pan, the Green Man, all this stuff was just so big and bringing us all together in the first place. And then we just randomly stumble upon this thing uh, in the middle of nowhere in this, you know, very old graveyard. 
in Wisconsin uh, that also linked up with all the stuff with the Beast of Bray Road and some of those other strange things. And uh, these were just sort of the, I don't know, kind of remarkable experiences that would happen more and more to me as I went on this journey. And it was, um, you know, it was something that I really wanted to do for the people that I had met along the way, because many of them had helped me in so many cases. And um, well, and not start taking them on these adventures. And I was uh, just absolutely delighted that we got something like that. You know, it was almost sort of a confirmation that uh, this was the appropriate path and the appropriate thing that we should be doing. Yeah, what you just described, I have kind of like three layers uh, of response. One is, I can't believe you haven't been speaking about that experience on the program before. If you haven't, it's like, yeah, that's fascinating. The second is like this Jungian idea of synchronicity that when you are on your journey and, and in action and paying attention to the signals around you, that these kinds of incidents will happen to you. And then the third layer is like, and what is to be made of it? Or what was the value of that experience? And it's very much like the moments that we've aspired to create for people in our work. I would call it the warp zone experience or the place of departure. And the place of departure is, is a place where you're in an environment and suddenly there's a new object or piece of art. Maybe it's a soundtrack or a map or a performer. There's something in this environment that suddenly overlaps with the ordinary world. And what the effect of this is that if you don't know where that artifact or that object or that or that performer, where it begins or ends, where did it come from? How did it get there? What is the story? And it's kind of nebulous or open-ended like what is the boundary or parameter is this real is it, how far does it go back what's the story or it calls everything else into question right so suddenly you're looking at this nearby tombstone in a different way or you're looking at that person standing over by the telephone pole you're looking at them in a different way and so really your perception of the world has been altered in that moment. And it leads to like in the video game analogy, that warp zone is when you end up going outside of one side of the screen and enter the left side of the screen. It's like, you don't know what happened in between that space. But I talk about it as, as a place of departure that is a place that is an opportunity. It's a portal to go through figuratively towards any type of discovery or transformation and it, it really depends on what else is there, the, both the participant and uh, what else might come from it. But that that moment of a warp zone experience is very relevant to the work that we've we've tried to do through metafiction, through magical realism. And it sounds like you had an experience that was genuinely real and magical. Oh, yeah. Well, that's um, one of many that I've uh, had, I guess, since I started this uh, process couple of years ago um yeah no it was um i think it was in the summer of 2020 that i saw a ufo for the first time and jeff i can tell you in all sincerity this was the most freaking underwhelming incident of high weirdness i've ever encountered 
Like <laughs> people like go their whole lives wanting to see a UFO. I saw a UFO and I was just kind of like, eh. I mean, and it was, I mean, it was weird, you know. I mean, first I thought it was like kind of a shooting star or something, and then it stopped dead in its tracks. It started going around in all these like crazy circles and stuff, zigzagging and what have you across the sky in front of me, and then it just blinked out of existence. I had already experienced a lot of stuff that was way more moving to me than that. So. Wow. Wow. Well, you're blessed, literally. But like one of the things that is being posited about both the mystic traditions and a lot of scientific research that is supporting it now is the idea that you're encountering these things isn't having like higher cognition or higher sensory perception, but actually our normative modes of sensory perception and consciousness filters out that phenomenon, right? And that the less we're filtering, the more we'll be exposed to those kinds of numinous encounters. I know when you had mentioned metafiction, I am intrigued by how some literary influences might have played into this. I mean, specifically some of the usual suspects like Borges and Thomas Pynchon and Neil Gaiman or, you know, something like House on the Leaves or even, uh, honestly, Stephen King's uh, Dark Tower series. I actually think that's one of the uh, better instances of what theory fiction or hyperstition or whatever CCRU uh, mumbo jumbo term you want to use. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the Thomas Pynchon one is probably the most resonant, and I'm not really into the genres, you know, sci-fi and fantasy as literary forms. Yeah, Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, on the magical realist point, and there's been a lot of people who have followed in his footsteps, but it's more of like an aesthetic guideline of like, when you're in a fantasy or a science fiction or a thriller, there are these genre tropes that indicate to you like, oh, this sound effect means that this is happening or, you know, there's a sensibility to those genres. And what magical realism does is it kind of strips away the genre tropes and treats magic or mysticism as just an integrated part of a reality, right? And so you would treat your scene, whether you're 
building an alternative reality game or a participatory artwork or or a film or a, a novel, you wouldn't call attention to the magic in a way that those genres might call attention to them. You would almost subdue the evidence of magic. It, it just is integrated into the world. And so that's how I've been informed by magical realism uh, in a literary sense. Now, that's an interesting take. I mean, I often thought that some of the genres, especially horror, were good because of how you could effectively subvert the tropes in certain senses, because the audience does have like uh, the expectations for this being to that or something to that effect. But um, yeah, it's to me, it's a bit of a pity that more uh, directors or authors don't try to do that. Uh, you know, you kind of see that a bit, maybe with somebody like David Lynch, who I think does such a good job at times of using different genres. And uh, I also think kind of use of film noir and things of that as well. But uh, he does such a great job of sort of subverting these time-honored, classic tropes. Yeah, David Lynch is a great touchstone for me. And there is a, a movement in horror now to, you know, this kind of new horror genre films like Hereditary and um, Midsommar. Um, Midsommar. And I'm thinking of It Follows and I'm thinking of the Jordan Peele work where it's like we're treating it as a drama and we're not giving you all of the indicators that this is a horror film. We're treating it as a dramatic film that has horrific events um, that are outrageous in all all of those cases. But because they're treating it like a drama, suddenly I'm engaged with it in a different way. Another figure that I often felt who was masterful of this kind of thing, um, even though I obviously wouldn't classify his work entirely as magical realism per se, but... Um, certainly in the category of surrealism, I think was Kubrick. Because it's, I think part of the reason why people find his films so unsettling is because he often will start out in an almost hyper-realistic fashion in some of these genres. Like I'm thinking at the beginning of like Dr. Strangelove, where I mean, it almost feels like a documentary. And then the movies just start becoming stranger and weirder as they go on. Uh, I mean, maybe even a little bit with 2001 as well, where, I mean, it has that almost hyper-realistic beginning with the dawn of man. And then by the end of it, you know, you're almost seeing like a uh, depiction of a theurgic ritual or something. I think that he did such a fantastic job of um, taking a lot of science fiction genre, the war film or something, and then really adding so many of these fantastic elements into them while still simultaneously almost keeping it grounded in reality. And I mean, again, it's almost something that you can see with The Shining as well. I've uh, often felt that he's overlooked in this sort of process as well. Oh, yeah, he's an auteur. And I don't know that he is overlooked. I mean... Um, well, in terms of his influence or his use of surrealism, I think, uh, at least it seems like some people don't really, I mean, I guess there's so much of his, you know, work that you could sort of focus on. It does seem to me, though, in that kind of context, he's overlooked. Oh, yeah, you're probably right that, like, outside of cinema, he may be overlooked in terms of his influence on kind of storytelling and the literary form. But, uh, yeah, there's a new doc out called Kubrick on Kubrick. He doesn't like to do interviews, or he did not like to do interviews, and he doesn't have a lot of content out there. And I think that's one of the things that is part of the mystique around him. But he had a very specific point of view and a methodology that he demonstrated 
over and over again. Uh, there's a lot to be learned from that. Absolutely. I was curious, how much of your early ARGs were meant to be a bit of a satire of various self-help or human potential outfits? It seems like Esther, Esalen, or even Dianevix are kind of reoccurring targets. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'll make the first distinction. Like, I didn't know what an alternative reality game was before I started to produce these things. For me, it was an adventure. And even the word immersive is something, if you look at, like, you can Google track the usage of, of words. And in 2008, it was not in the dictionary. It did not result in web searches for, for you know, the word immersive. And now it's everywhere. Everything is immersive. And so alternative reality games are a genre of still within the greater category of games and so the people who are attracted to it and the audience that has been cultivated around that has been really strange and foreign to me i've always viewed this as a participatory artwork more in line with the situationists and these happenings and events where you will be challenged in ways that are sometimes don't have have easy answers or they might feel uncomfortable. And so I've always kind of viewed the work in that realm. And then there's a lot of people who come in with the point of view of a, like a puzzle master, or they're very highly analytic, or maybe this is their new social group that they're involved with where they can role play. And so I'm still in resistance to that label, even though it's beyond my control at this point. But I think you know what I'm talking about of the distinction between something like a situationist happening and an alternative reality game uh, like forum, you know. Um, there is a distinction in terms of the expectations, the values, the language, and the you know the perceptions of those kinds of projects. And it's remained a tension, and it's remained a struggle. And so I will continue to to attempt to draw that distinction around the work. And then leading to you know your more direct question. So when I was 15 years old, I went through something called actualizations, and it uh, was Stuart Emery was the Australian showman who was a colleague of Werner Earhart's of Est, you know, but those things were part of like the Echelon Retreat Center and the general movement towards human consciousness that preceded both the Beats and the Hippies in the Bay Area. They were people who were um, drawing from Eastern traditions, and there was also the advent of, of psychedelic medicine, both intentional and unintentional uses of those drugs or overt and covert uses of those uh, medicines or substances. And so, you know, the early 60s and the 70s were not far off from the, the 80s when I was coming of age and participating in those groups. And so some of the content and the cultures around those groups are very authentic and very legitimate right? They're legitimate efforts. And then around that, there's a great fringe movement of pseudoscience and shucksterism and um, charlatans that are there to um, misguide you on your journey. And I'm just as much paying tribute to those things in the Jejun Institutes, especially with Products like the Time Camera, the Memory to Media Center, the um, Human Dolphin Interactions, the Polywater, um, the Algorithm. Um, actually, the Algorithm is the only one that was like 
entirely original, at least to my mind, like that I came up with that was an original product and service. But we tipped our hats to the breatharians, those who, you know, subsist off of uh, sun rays, you know, rather than uh, nutrients, you know, or food nourishment, you know. We try to like give honor to both the legitimate human potential movement groups and all of the fringe groups that are a natural byproduct of those kinds of movements. I should mention are like the um, early origins of the entire like heck uh, movement (laughs) and Silicon Valley and everything comes as a result of those explorations in human consciousness that were happening in this geographic area in the mid and late 20th century. All right. So I noticed an influence that you cited on the Institute is a place that uh, I've become fascinated by recently. It's called the Museum of uh, Jurassic Technology. Unfortunately, I have uh, not been there yet. Uh, I've only been out to California once, uh, but it seems like a very House on the Rocks-esque place. So how did it uh, shape your approach to art? Well, I learned about the uh, Museum of Jurassic Technology kind of synchronously as I was creating the Jejun Institute. So they weren't like a direct inspiration, and I only went to visit it later. But it's a very odd... So it is kind of that magical realism thing where you're going into a museum exhibit environment where everything is presented as a kind of like a historical or, or scientific exhibition but what you're looking at and experiencing is completely i don't want to say like absurd and like that kind of like weird silly but like impossible <laughs> like improbable and strange so they're presenting this stuff in a very dry and a, a very academic presentation and uh, when you haven't been prepared for that it is this kind of a jolt or jogging to your cognitive system and your and your sensibilities that you're struggling or you're reaching to make sense of what is in front of you and so it's i'm i'm so glad that they're there and they're definitely to be celebrated although i never had like the breakthrough experience of like delight and greater understanding it's i still remain in the territory of curiosity and some struggle with the with the content of it but it's absolutely worthwhile yeah no i was uh, also i think partly drawn to it because of a synchronicity i had with it uh so one of them uh by the way uh, my two all-time favorite tv shows are uh twin peaks and the x-files um and as to the latter i pretty much had started watching that religiously since i was uh I think even a preteen uh, when it first came out in 1993. But uh, anyway, one of my all-time favorite episodes where Mulder and Scully, where all these people were being consumed by this like a uh, giant mushroom kind of entity being drawn underground and then kind of slowly um, decomposed and eaten by it. And as they were going through this process, they would be kind of like tripping. And it, it made me think of some of the stuff that uh, was displayed at the Museum of Jurassic Technology, especially how like eventually when they would die i think they would have like these spores come out of their throats which was something that had been mentioned at i think one of the exhibits or something to that effect 
So I was definitely struck by the possibility that uh, one of the writers might have uh, gone to the Museum of Jurassic Technology. It's also so the writers of the X-Files? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of think so. I feel like uh, the X-Files came before the Museum of Jurassic Technology. Yeah, it did, but it ran until 2001. And this would have been like in one of the, it might have actually even have been season six or something like that. So this would have been like around 1999, I think, or 98 or something like that. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of always fascinated too by how pop culture can kind of amplify some of these places. Of course, House in the Rocks is a great example of that with um, uh, obviously its inclusion in American Gods, uh, which was really, um, you know, kind of striking to me because that place, I mean, is really, you know, I've had some definitely some interesting experiences there and some of the people I've taken there, but it's kind of designed to be as disorienting as possible because you go into these rooms where the furniture is either like uh, oversized or undersized and it's like the same thing with the ceilings and uh you know, you're constantly going like up and down and so forth. And it definitely creates the effect where you lose uh, really your sense of time. You know, I've had uh, some moments when I've been in there and it seemed like, uh, you know, only an hour had passed and I had actually been in there for like four or five hours. And then other times where I've been, it seemed like I had been in there for like four or five hours and I'd only been in there for like two. So it really does do that in a certain sense. And then the whole thing with the, um, Oh, um, the carousel is kind of interesting as well because they never really show how like the uh, the ceiling is basically modeled after Dante's Inferno with the different levels of hell and then normally you sort of like exit it uh, through literally like the mouth of the devil <laughs> so it's a very just strange thing to go through especially after you've uh, kind of gone out of the part of the uh the setup where you know you're not necessarily going through all these kind of lobby like up and down spots and what have you though ironically it does lead into the um gosh, the exhibit with the dolls and then the the clowns um which definitely if you're already afraid of clowns that whole thing is going to horrify <laughs> you i'm not afraid of clowns and there's still some the clown images in there that are really freaking creepy <laughs> yeah interesting and so what you're initially like uh drew attention to of like how pop culture kind of usurps and projects these more like genuinely strange things out here on the west coast we have the winchester mystery house which is turned into a major turnstile attraction you know and i think that's a good analogy for like what can happen to underground fringe genuine subcultural genuinely mysterious things is like popular culture and the industry that's built around that is going to draw not only inspiration from that, but they're going to exploit those things for the growth of their market share and their gross domestic product. The whole thing is is going to be turned around, sterilized, and sucked a, a, like a of some of the more or all of the most genuine meaning and value that is that can be drawn from, from either those groups of schools of thoughts or those experiences. And this gets into what I'd hope to talk a little bit about, which is the state of immersive entertainment, its role in our lives, uh, what it can do, what it can't do, what it should do, what it shouldn't do, what it is doing. Um, and so like the house on the rock or the Winchester mystery house being like an influence for the X-Files and maybe the X-Files has led towards people's 
like a change in their perspective or their consciousness or them asking the right questions. But the real research is going to have to happen like on their own, right? It, they're going to be given a thread to pull on. But if you keep on going to the X files to pull on those threads, I don't know. Maybe you can tell me how was it, was it a gateway to real answers or did it give you real answers? Yeah, I mean, I actually, I mean, I do sort of think in a sense, because I, I think that that uh, was definitely a major influence on how I sort of viewed the world and certainly opened me up to the possibilities of, uh, you know, a, a much more incredible world than what we're often taught in school. And uh, it's kind of funny, specifically the, I don't know if you're familiar with the series, but the episodes that I was always really drawn to uh, were the ones that were written by Darren Morgan. He always wrote like the weirdest, most absurdest episodes of the X-Files. He did like Jose Chung's From Outer Space, uh, which really went full on into kind of the uh, Jacques Vallée, John Kill, or John Kill uh, ultra-terrestrial interdimensional hypothesis, but this really campy fashion with like these you know, interdimensional beings that came from underground that they used like stop motion animation for. And then previously he had done another one uh, that revolved around like modern day carnivals. Uh, and again, I'm big buff of carnivals, so not surprising I would be drawn to that. But um, it was kind of a very much, I think, a transformative experience for me because it was sort of the first time that I was introduced to what you could kind of look at as sort of surrealism or uh, magical realism because a lot of his episodes were from pretty early in the series, like the second or uh, the third season. And then, um, I suppose, ironically, another rather peculiar kind of um, fiction I was always really... Uh, taken with were private detective films uh, but specifically ones that usually would revolve around kind of paranormal stuff thinking of like angel heart or um in the mouth of madness clive barker's lord of illusions or i don't know if you remember those uh, movies like what was it witchcraft or the witching hour something like that where they had that kind of fictional version of hp lovecraft as a private eye it was like on hbo in the 90s um but yeah i had they would do those you know, like career days for school and stuff like that. And I always wanted to put something down like paranormal or fringe investigator or something like that. Instead, I would end up doing like private detective uh, because, you know, there really wasn't a career uh, involved around fringe investigations. But I suppose in a sense, I uh, went on as an adult to sort of create a niche for myself doing that very thing. <laughs> so... Yeah, I do think that uh, in a lot of ways, uh, some of these shows, and then also, I mean, Twin Peaks would be uh, just the general, uh, you know, uh, David Lynch's uh, general uh, overture of works uh, would also be ones that I would cite for uh, things that initially kind of put me on this path because it did, you know, introduce me to the possibilities that um, there was this extraordinarily world uh, that was worth pursuing or investigating and is what I've tried to do. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, Lynch, especially for me, the playing and, and deconstruction of like linear narratives in there has also been mystifying and helpful for me in terms of viewing how we tell stories as a, a way to synthesize our own experience and, and realities and like the structure of these stories. There's there's formulas for them, but often our stories don't adhere <laughs> to those structures. 
Yeah, see, that's why Darren Morgan's stuff really blew my mind on the X-Files, because he was doing exactly what you were saying. It's like he basically was taking the sort of like standard monster of the week X-Files formula and totally tearing it down and reconstructing it, totally just subverting your expectations for it. You know, that was definitely, I think, something that was quite a revelation for me. So... Yeah, I think that there's definitely that specific kind of art that can really change your perception of reality that is uh, most instructive in that sense. Yeah, well, do you mind if I like um, read something for you that's kind of like a lead into my thesis about where this work is going? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Okay, so one of the inspiring texts for me is a book called Free Play, and the author's last name has at least six syllables, so I know I'll mispronounce it, but it's about improvisation in art and life, and it's that boundary between art and life I think that we're talking about here. I think uh, what he's putting forth in, in the book is that the more that, that we don't draw the distinctions, a hard distinction between art and life, the more value the, the art can have for us. And so the introduction to the book states that there is an old Sanskrit word, lila, which means play. Richer than our word, it means divine play, the play of creation and destruction and recreation and folding and unfolding of the cosmos. Lila, free and deep, is both delight and enjoyment of this moment and the play of God. It also means love. Leela may be the simplest thing there is, spontaneous, childish, disarming, but as we grow and experience the complexities of life, it may also be the most difficult and hard-won achievement imaginable, and it's coming to fruition as a kind of homecoming to our true selves. And I feel like that passage indicates a lot of the impulse and instinct to create an immersive world, to create an alternative reality game, to build a, a metafiction, right? And so there was a time when these metafictions and this impulse to create a different narrative and to kind of disrupt the mundane and to initiate people into this other world through creating an alternative reality, I'm feeling like maybe that time has passed and that there's a new kind of medicine that we're seeking right now. And that is my thesis. And I've got these kind of points along the way that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. The idea of building a metafiction like built into the real world as it is, is something that I started doing in a, like a real immediate way in, in 2008 and other people had been dabbling in for a long time. You, you know, you've alluded to these traditions, but in terms of the gaming, 
the arts and entertainment world. That was a time when there was a core narrative in our society. Um, there was a, a um, monoculture. There was um, this direction that Western civilization collectively felt that it was going in. And we're not actually in that world anymore. So the idea that we would be disrupting a core narrative isn't really that helpful right now because we're so lost in narratives. And the people who are actually like using the technology of world building in this way have been misusing and abusing it. And I think QAnon is probably the most primary example of that, of like, okay, let's use this idea of a metafiction and superimposing a narrative onto the everyday world. It's like we've seen the malappropriated application of that. We've seen how people are drawn to this and, and what are the terrible results that can happen around that? Um, Nexium is another example. And the idea of like, you know, obviously fake news or the or misinformation, alt, um, artificial intelligence, the idea that we can't really tell what is real anymore takes away from the validity or the need for a playful meta-narrative. It's no longer, we're no longer playing anymore. We've seen the actual real results of living in a, in a reality that is unverifiable. Um, do you follow me on that? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's actually a big part of the uh, the book that I'm working on, the sort of like uh, the counterbalance between the two different grooves with this. And certainly there is that negative aspect of it that's really hijacked all of this uh within the you know kind of national security state and even more so the deep private as i like to think of it that um you know has really created these variations on these immersive experiences but in a very simplistic way that's meant to target mass audiences and that's again another reason why i was uh fascinated by the parallels with the uh the original rastacrucian manifestos because i definitely could see similarities with how Andrea came to feel about the manifestos where they had been originally intended for a certain group of people that had experiences and a background that could really appreciate what he was getting at and uh, once they got out to the broader public and uh, were used by other actors they just took on a life of their own and they were used for means that we was never intended for it seems like that's very much the case now with things like QAnon and a lot of these other sort of fringe groups it's it's definitely something that's given me pause as well and it's uh it's a conflict because you know it's something where uh i feel like i've grown a lot as a person but i mean it's not something that i think everybody could and you know it's become a major issue in modern day society with both the weaponization and the fact that um the public at large just doesn't have any context of these experiences and how to successfully go through them and yeah it's taken a toll Right. So if you have this kind of methodology or this kind of serum or medicine or like a certain mojo, right, that you're applying towards positive magic, and then you see that exact thing being used by um, much greater powers than yourself for other less holistic applications, it does give you pause. And so I have absolutely taken pause. And you kind of drew attention to like the 
co-opting and the big boxing of this immersive or alternative reality movement. And if you go to Las Vegas right now, and particularly like Area 15, you'll see massive complexes or the 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 Star Wars Hotel Star Cruiser experience, you know, and the list goes on the Van Gogh exhibits. And yeah, you've got Meow Wolf. And yeah, you've got like a Sleep No More, which might be more genuine artists. But like, my experience of those things is that they're they're increasingly just the next corporate turnstile entertainment experience. And so whatever, you know, idea that this could be a transformative experience or like a, a mystical experience or a genuinely moving experience, I think we get further and further from that. And so that's another one of the influences is, you know, the the commodification of these experiences and there's a there's balances to be achieved i'm not like calling people sellouts or anything like this i'm just talking about my experience of going and doing the mega mart uh meow wolf experience and everybody coming to me talking about have you seen the the immersive van gogh or been to the star cruiser hotel experience and me going okay well the age of innocence is far behind us now and the age of discovering what this could possibly become is behind us too because we've seen what it's become and it's nothing i think that's really challenging the status quo well yeah i mean it's effectively become the uh, status quo it's i mean as strange as that may sound but i mean certainly i mean i think you kind of hit the nail on the head i, I you know i think of it as the breakdown of consensus reality in a lot of ways we're seeing the the dark side of um is it Robert Anton Wilson who said when uh, the weird gets weird, the weird turn pro or something like that? I think that was Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson, yeah, yeah. But then, okay, so then where do we go from here? Yeah, and that's a great question. And before I even get to that, like, where's the solution and what do I see on the horizon? I'll mention that like there is a culture and a community built up around the immersive movement. And I was a great contributor to that. And I've also experienced being a very poor leader in that environment. And I think that issue of leadership and what it means is a part of this kind of like sober look at where we are. I got like burned at the stake by that community and I, I blacklisted from all of the major events or publications and it's probably like a divorce that was coming long before but i'll say that in my generation and the the communities that i was raised in and all the ones that i've referenced there is a value towards good faith conflict resolution a kind of um, verification of facts or stories or hearing maybe a more nuanced version to a story or holding space for healthy disagreement or really, really supporting your artists, even the ones you're in your greatest contributors, really, really supporting them, even if they're not at their best in any certain moment. And so what I'm bringing attention to is the complete lack of all those things, not only in the immersive realm, but you can see it as a result of online life and user forums. The, I mean, cancel culture is an easy label for it, but what I'm talking about is the corrosion of productive dialogue, <laughs> the corrosion of being able to hold two different viewpoints and a nuanced worldview. And because of that, 
the community itself can't uphold its greatest artists and contributors and you're gonna result in work that is what it is i don't i don't know what it is i'm not a part of it anymore and so what you talked about of like this corrosion of consensus reality we've really had a corrosion of uh means of of really meaningful dialogue and community building and and leadership so that is an element that i think is absolutely a important factor in the equation i couldn't agree more certainly i mean a lack of just leadership or maybe even a broaderly speaking of vision has been a major issue i mean it just seems like in general uh one of the biggest struggles nowadays is uh, that people can't imagine a better future it's one of the biggest obstacles to work around yeah, yeah. And not only a vision, but a container for the vision and a container for the group, right? You're not going to find it online. I do not think you're going to like Maybe there's some very, very private sub forums or something that have a real ethos. Um, and, and I would like to be introduced to those. But from what I see, the major platforms, it's a terrible, terrible mess with real world consequences. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, I think, something very much you've got to take in the meat space and, you know, really get back uh, into, you know, the physical world. I mean, I do think the online component could be useful because it does give, you know, the ability of people uh, with common interests to find each other, like across the world, which can be a very uh, solid thing. But at some point, you have to start uh, building, like, I think, communities, not just online, because that's never really going to work, uh, but in actual real life. And yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I'm not a Luddite. Here we are on a Zoom call, and we're doing the thing, and podcasts have been very, very helpful for me. I think podcasting is one of the platforms that has, like, kind of transcended the space, but, like, we've all also heard people lamenting online life and i think that like um was it clubhouse the one that was kind of trying to do audio stuff was an attempt at kind of elevating the general dialogue but i do think that these like live genuine in-person gatherings are the the right uh, and most pure medicine for these these misgivings, these conflicts, these uh, projections, this shadow projection that we're constantly doing as individuals and as a culture. It's like we really do have to get back in the space, in the real space. And that was one of the uh, motivations for um, the Jejun, uh, the latitude, the, definitely the latitude society. But like I, as a as a creator, resisted all the online platforms for ten years and like missed out on creating a following and then didn't really understand how it works when I did later try to get involved and realized like, oh, I'm way outside of whatever beast has evolved <laughs> through this technology. And, and now like, yeah, we're going to use these tools to try to collaborate, to coordinate and to dialogue. But I, I think that once you're getting into a, a difficult space or a conflicted space or a very challenging space, we need to find these other methods. And a, a simple phone call can do so much to um, alleviate whatever imagined thing that you're, or this, this thing that you're projecting onto 
the other. So yeah, I'm just bringing attention to that, like in terms of building a community or having a collective or speaking to higher values of inclusivity or whatever the language is you're giving to it. It's like we failed a lot, a lot of, um, there's been a lot of failure and I've, I failed, I've personally failed at trying to like cultivate a, a real community and I've learned a lot and I've kind of been through the fires and come out on the other side. And this is what I'm going to propose. And I think you've, you've drawn some attention to it in our conversation, but here, here's my proposal of what's possibly on the horizon or the other end of this dark tunnel we find ourselves in. And it is this using these tools and this sense of alchemy, like I was doing it, all of the projects gestured towards something that was greater than ourselves. Uh, maybe that's a group or maybe that's civilization. Maybe that's an aesthetic or an ethos or a, or a value. There's something greater than ourselves, but also they've gestured towards the numinous. They've gestured towards the mysterious, the mystical and, and the magical. And I would be applying these magical realist narratives trying to give people experiences that were illusions or gestures or they mirrored or shadowed or proposed this other really magical transformative thing. And as such, the reasons that I've mentioned, we're in a post-truth world, there's been a loss of a core narrative, we have a lack of vision and leadership in a container for that. These are the reasons why we shouldn't be building magical fictions anymore. We should be actually activating authentic magic. And the more work that I've done, the more that I've experienced actual like transformative and numinous experiences and connections to both my deeper self, my inner self, and to my connection to the human race and the human civilization and towards the cosmos. And so what I'm proposing is that we use those tools that we've done through art, through performance, through theater, through content creation. And what we in the immersive space can do is apply genuine magic and offer people narratives that are real, meaning that your real story of where you came from and how you got here and how you showed up to this event is a real narrative. And your relationship to the work is a nonfiction story. And I know that has a lot of fuzzy areas, but the project that I'm currently working on is exactly as I've described it. I very much see where you're getting with that. And I mean, in a sense, that's almost uh, in a way what I uh, kind of inadvertently had ended up doing with some of the uh, things that I've been doing with the trips, because um, for me, the most dissatisfying aspect was it is that it kind of became a means of uh, community building in the sense that, you know, not only was I uh, meeting all of these interesting people, but I was also bringing them together. And um, beyond that, you know, we were kind of finding like these different like locations around the country. And, uh, you know, it's gradually built up into this sort of network where, I mean, we can all gather around, you know, gather up at a couple of times a year and, uh, you know, do our thing. I mean, enjoy each other's company, have all the uh, sort of weird conversations and whatever that we can have with other people build create um 
all that other kind of stuff. And I think in a lot of ways that has been uh, the most rewarding aspect of it. And it frequently does lead to these kind of experiences, like you're saying. And it's something that I, you know, have really wanted to build on uh, going forward. You know, um, that's why I really love what they've done uh, with Somerset, where it's almost sort of become this uh, kind of a high weirdness sort of sub community there with the arts community and so forth. And I mean, at a few points of the year, it's uh, a sense where you do get people coming there and you're getting this uh, very unique approach to uh, this kind of thing. You know, even like the area where I'm living, I mean, I see a lot of potential to do something like that, especially since uh, you already sort of have like this wonderful dynamic with so much of the, um, you know, the local food and what have you being grown around here. I mean, I get almost everything from local farmers markets and butchers, and there's already been some kind of emergence of a, a local art scene. But I mean, I always think that there's uh, so much potential here to sort of community build. And as time goes on, I mean, it would be fascinating to see if we could sort of build up these networks of the weird, I mean, across the nation where people could come together and, uh, you know, certainly gain assistance and able to have these kinds of experiences. Because I think certainly uh, as we go into this uncertain future, <laughs> to put it mildly, um, the excesses, so to speak, of the 20th century aren't going to be uh, as feasible as they once were. So, I mean, we're going to have to work together, I think, if we're going to continue this process and on the one hand, keep maybe some of these places alive and on the others, uh, continue sort of this ongoing process of self-discovery for many of us. And who knows? I mean, maybe it becomes a legitimate foundation, but I mean, yeah, it's something that I think ultimately has to manifest in the real world because like you're saying, that's where the real magic occurs and that's something that I've seen time and again. And, um, you know, I mean, I think it is a great experience for people for that reason. And also simply because it's great to finally come together with people in the real world where you can explore a lot of these interests with. I mean, that's something that... Uh, I mean, I can see if you uh, had grown up like in the Bay Area or something like that. But I mean, so many people, um, you know, I mean, I was in Daytona Beach, Florida, for instance. That's uh, not necessarily uh, the most artistically inclined place, or at least when I was uh, living there, uh, with right. apologies to the death metal scene. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you know, something where I think that... Uh, you know, the online thing can be helpful, but uh, it has to be ultimately a stepping stone to a real world manifestation of something yeah, that's more pure and even better. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you and, and what you said. And one of the things that you mentioned about like this um, period that we're in, um, this liminal world we find ourselves in where we haven't quite let go of all of those excesses of the 20th century and all of our beliefs and our attitudes around collective life. And the notion that it has begun, this undoing of civilization as, as we know it, and we've all suffered in some way as a result of, of the conditions recently, and we're going to continue to need to 
alter our perceptions and expectations of of what civilization and commerce and and politics and institutions we've seen the undoing of some of the most trusted institutions and the lack of faith in those institutions and so what we have not done is collectively realized and acknowledged that fact we have not grieved or mourned or really collectively even spoken out loud the death of the world we knew and that's the other thing that this project, which uh, there is a, is a team um, that is uh, developing this, this project, is an experience that in a non-fictional way will provide a space and a container for the real process of death and grief and letting go of the world as we knew it, so that we can envision and embody something new. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's uh, very important, you know, for people to realize that there is something more to the world than these kind of mundane things, because, uh, you know, that is, I think, as you're saying, at the root of so much of the trauma that people are uh, experiencing right now. It's like they know that the world's transforming, that we're not going to have all of the uh, trappings and comforts that we necessarily like once did, which when you only have a certain you know limited worldview i mean that can be terrifying so i mean i think that uh it is important to offer up uh instances where you can see that the you know the world is no less magical even if uh you know you don't always have like air conditioning or something like that or uh, if we're not eating meat every single day or i mean any number of uh regular things that we take for granted now I guess, you know, this is an obvious thing that I'll say out loud is like growing up, you know, we anticipated there might be this event, this single cataclysmic event in which there was a line between what was and the new normal. And that line uh, we've learned is a very gray one. It's a slope that we're on and that we're clearly on that slope now, but it's not one day you woke up and everything was changed. It was that every day there's conditions that are just changing and they will, are continuing to, and they, they will for the foreseeable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why I kind of feel like more and more, you know, we do need grounding and like actual communities in the real world, because like you're saying, there is so much uh, cataclysmic stuff that's unfolding right now. And I mean, I know for me, and I like to think for a lot of other people, that's been kind of the other um, kind of upside to a lot of this. I mean, against the you know, the backdrop of so much of the uh, incredible and uh, terrifying things that are unfolding in the world today. You know, we have been able to continue having uh, these kind of communal experiences. So, and I think that's something that more and more people have, because I mean, again, we, you know, haven't really mentioned it, but um, just, you know, it's not just uh, society that's breaking down, but I mean, really it's the notion of families and all these other kinds of things. I mean, that's just... Uh, I think the other kind of pink elephant is just how isolated people become in general nowadays. I mean, especially with the younger generation. And that's, you know, again, getting into another one of the uh, the dark sides of so much of the technology of social media. It's like you now have just whole generations that have grown up in this uh, environment. And, you know, it's almost difficult for them to even get offline and experience the real world. I mean, I... um. You know, at one point, uh, one of my friends had uh, brought her kids over here when she was uh, running some errands for me. And 
you know, the kid was so used to having gaming systems. And I um, personally, I'm not really a gamer. I don't have any video game ports or anything like that. And told him that. And just, you know, I mean, after about a half an hour, the kid was kind of freaking out a little bit uh, because, you know, he just doesn't really know how to be, you know, what to do when he doesn't have a game there to play. Uh, I mean, he ended up chasing my cat around the cabin and terrified the poor girl. Um, Yeah, I've got a teenage son and you just described him and his couple of friends. And it's like, why go out and like explore and why go uh, meet new people or go to a party or, you know, hang out with, uh, you know, or experiment with substance or sex or, you know, why would you do that when there's just this little dopamine trigger that you can keep scrolling for. And uh, luckily he is signed up for outward bound this summer. So he's going to spend a few weeks out in the woods with some like genuine, like leadership component and challenging experience. I'm so grateful that he'll have that opportunity, but like, yeah, this struggle is real. We had no idea what we were doing when we unlocked this technology to those children. I mean, it's like, I mean, this is like, it's incredible to me, but it's like, you have this whole generation of like, you know, younger guys, I mean, who have like erectile dysfunction disorder by the time they're in their like late teens, early twenties, because it's like, they're so used to online porn and, you know, actually sadly some of the more extreme stuff that, uh, you know, the real thing just isn't stimulating. (laughs) Yeah, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. And like, there's only so many words I can say. Yeah. Father. Those of us from I older would... generation, it's like, wow, that that's, you can't experience the real thing. I mean, wow. Like, yeah, it, it is a genuine tragedy. But the good news is that we are human beings. We are human animals and whatever amount of wiring and nervous system and trauma and core beliefs or ideas we have, they can be transformed, they can be alleviated, they can be reprogrammed. And sometimes it's arduous and takes years to do, but we're still human animals. We still, you know, have this um, spirit and connection to others and connection to the earth and and to the cosmos. And so, I I mean, maybe that idea can be challenged, but I'm going to believe that through Um, some of the darker aspects of this reckoning that we're going through, that there is something uh, to be discovered and to move towards. I think my bigger concern, though, is we don't have the the luxury of time necessarily. I mean, I do think we might be uh, stripped of our devices or at least not be able to use them as frequently uh, in the very near future, um, certainly if conditions continue. So... Mm. What's your timeline? Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully it would be in a few years, but I mean, gosh, you know, like you're kind of saying, I mean, it seems like almost every day, I mean, something else comes out about the situation in Ukraine or Taiwan or something. You're just like, oh my goodness, we could be in a, you know, a full-blown shooting third world war here. I mean, very, very soon. So who knows? Yeah, and you're you're 100% accurate. And I'm very like naive about a lot of these things, but I will say that it is only when our backs are up against the wall that we find our deepest inner resources. And just like when the pandemic first hit and suddenly people in every continent stopped operating as usual, they stopped commuting and they, and they, they began to behave in a different way, we instantly saw 
this kind of uh, resurgence of, of, of natural uh, lives and, and habitats and air quality and everything. And it was because a decision was collectively made and it came out of a kind of desperate uh, place, uh, urgent, uh, desperate place. But we coordinated as a species to some degree because of our connectivity, uh, all the the technologies we're lamenting. And what I'm bringing attention to is that these elements of imagination, inspiration, heart, soulfulness, resourcefulness, and empathy, uh, these are all innate to the human species. And it might take some some further doom, some further gloom for us to access those collectively, but those resources are, are 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 there, and that's the place that I'm trying to operate from as a creator. No, I totally agree. I totally agree, and yeah, I mean, I think that's really the big thing is to um, try to remind people that there, you know, that those things still exist out there. Again, I think that's and they exist in here. Yes, animals. Yes, yes. So something that's easy to lose track of in the world today. No, I think it's been certainly a very insightful conversation, sir. Did uh, you have any closing thoughts here before we wrap up? Well, we traveled around the world and back and <laughs> beyond. And went back and, several centuries at a few points. So, <laughs> Yeah, and I'm definitely going to follow up on some of the little markers. I've been taking some notes and everything. So I think there's you know, room to keep the conversation going at some point. But yeah, like we've definitely gotten deep into the forest and so I appreciate it, Stephen. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you for uh, coming on. It's uh, been a pleasure, sir. For now, as always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening. And with that, I say to you as always, good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>
the boat with Santum went diffused in it Shoot it over the castle wall, the Migra can't patrol it off From Berlin to the Great Wall, the greatest walls all bound to fall So legalize it, Vato, about a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it, no need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer, everybody even caught a realized If a farmer don't make cash money when we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, honey Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army Honeywell and L3, razor wires, UAVs Officer, excuse me please Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway on crazy checks, BP on that fast pay I sing my hooly blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all Just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies If Great White Father don't make payroll Forget about your maple 